We're hearing history told by new voices right now. And we right. need those voices. We need precisely this generation of historians, African-American historians, Native American historians, people telling the history first like it, like it really was, and second, from a different perspective. Welcome to an outstanding and fun season four of the Hardwood Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Thomas Richard Easley, and I think you're going to enjoy this season and the episodes that we have forthcoming. Thank you. Welcome to another great episode of the Hardwood Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Thomas Rashad Easley, uh, aka Rashad Easley, hip hop forester, um, but also more importantly, just happy to be a global citizen. I'm talking to a uh, brilliant, amazing, pretty well known individual too today, okay, Professor Jeffrey Sachs. I want to say welcome to our podcast, sir. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, good to be with you, Thomas. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Appreciate you. And I know that you're very busy. And so, look, not to, for all I guess listening, okay, look, I'm not I'm trying to be rude, okay, but Professor Sex has a lot going on. So, we're going to jump in. But as we do that, I want to give a, like a brief uh, definition of diversity to everyone who's listening, because I'm going to ask uh, uh, um, Professor Sex a number of questions around this. So, in, in, in diversity, uh, 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 we talk about where it primarily just means difference, but we talk about how we celebrate, highlight, and support various identities. Those identities can be everything from racial or ethnic background, gender, gender identity, uh, sexual orientation, religion, faith, ex uh, access, uh, ability, look, income, education, where you're from, language. And, uh, and then the other thing is place of origin and your upbringing. So each individual has a culture that we bring to our work, that we bring to whenever we're talking about the environment. But that's one of our main definitions that we work with, okay? Uh, and so with that, Professor Sachs, love to just go into asking you a couple of questions here. All right. Okay. So you have had a very illustrious uh, career, academic, professional course academic gifts professional but well, i wanted to ask uh, could you talk about uh, some about your academic and professional background on international sustainable development how'd you get into that you know uh, thomas from uh, uh, the beginning of, of my entry into uh, thinking about economics even finding out what it is which goes back about 50 years now uh, i was interested in in, in the international dimension of this because I started thinking about economics, uh, looking around uh, as a student traveling actually in Europe, uh, even taking a visit to the Soviet Union early on in high school and uh, being amazed. What is all this, these differences, different ideas, different ideologies, different approaches? Of course, I knew almost nothing at the time. And I said, I better understand uh, this because it's, it's, Cool. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, and so from the start of my interest in economics, which I actually date to 50 years ago, I was always asking the question, what's happening in different places in the world? Why? What's the right thing to do? Uh, what's a good economic system? Uh, why do different countries or different uh, philosophies differ about that question? And I think I've been on, on that topic uh, more or less all my career. Now, it happened that I had 
first the the interest in studying international economics that became my specialty it became uh, the topic of my phd dissertation mm-hmm. I, when i joined the faculty uh, at harvard university 41 years ago uh, i was uh, teaching international monetary economics international finance and then uh, as as a young professional i got involved in practical puzzles problem solving the debt crisis mm. of latin america in the 1980s uh, hyperinflation the transformation of uh, central and eastern europe from the soviet communist era to membership in the european union all mm-hmm. of those topics meant that i was looking at the world on the ground from different places thinking about more and more the role of culture uh, history geography as a shaper of societies and as part of this puzzle of our diverse world by now having worked in well far over 100 countries and spent uh, spending most of my time in the last 41 years at least partly traveling each year to all parts of the world that idea of a diverse world that is uh, blessed with this diversity bringing different perspectives different strengths different knowledge different cultures i find one of the most exciting features of of our very uh, humanness uh, of our very humanity first of all first of all say thank you for that you mentioned first of all everyone listen to that okay you said 41 50 years of experience studying economics in particular but around the world sustainable and national development so we're talking to not just a brilliant individual but a leader which leads me to my next question professor sex when you were talking one thing you were talking about you you posed some questions like what's happening in different parts of the world why what's a good economic system and what and why do different countries differ on that topic then you also said that I've when in my travels I've been on the grounds with the people so to me you you've been able to and you know either be impacted by other people's history different things going on socially you know and so my question is you know what is the role of including diverse perspectives and and in particular in UN SDG goal implementations in terms of nationality race social economics and gender let me say first of all thomas from a um the point of view of principle our starting point my starting point is the universal declaration of human rights which is sometimes called the moral charter of the United Nations. It was adopted in 1948. We're nearing the 75th anniversary of that remarkable document. It's the first time that governments from all over the world got together to uh, draft, negotiate and then sign a moral charter. And what it says is that all of humanity, all people Uh, no matter their race religion ethnicity geography class gender everybody has human rights these include economic rights the rights to a decent standard of life uh, the rights to a livelihood the rights to education the rights to healthcare i believe in this principle uh, that we are uh, a, a single human species that we are all interdependent yes. uh, that we owe each other decency 
respect and that in a rich world, it is just a shame and a complete unnecessary tragedy that there is still extreme poverty, that people are hungry, uh, that they don't have enough to eat, they can't get access to basic health care. Uh, there isn't a place in school for a child because there isn't a budget to provide for that. These are anachronisms for the 21st century. So my perspective, and it also comes from being with people all over the world, uh, being in lots of poor villages, uh, talking to people, sharing uh, that overwhelming sense that, you know, this is fun. We really are neighbors. Uh, we really uh, can... Uh, have this uh, joy of hospitality, of uh, culture together. We're a rich world. So why is it that we haven't solved the basic, simple issue, I'll put it that way, of poverty within a world of plenty? Mm. Now, it's taken me a long time to uh, get a, a, a decent understanding of that because partly it's about economics, partly it's about history. Partly, it's about grotesque exploitation that, that, by the way, you don't learn about in school. Uh, it's all hidden. It takes a long time to understand these things. And I am just amazed every day at things that I, oh, my God, I didn't know that. And I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, during, you. during COVID, I, I've been... Uh, I, I walk for my sanity, uh, generally around, <laughs> around Central Park, uh, one long loop around Central Park each day. Okay. Uh, and, and I listen to audiobooks while I walk. And, uh, and I've, I've listened to some absolutely phenomenal uh, books during the past uh, uh, two years uh, during this uh, pandemic. But uh, one of the most remarkable, maybe the most remarkable of all, was a book that I thought I was going to listen to for a few minutes because I didn't know anything about it. Now, this is unbelievable because uh, at my age, it's just shocking and, and a little shameful that I didn't know anything about it and, and never read it. It was uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction. Now, you know, I had read nothing by Du Bois until the pandemic. He's one of the most brilliant social thinkers of modern history. I hadn't read a word by him. I, I knew there was a Du Bois Institute at Harvard. I knew he was a you know, great person. I hadn't read one word. So I downloaded the audiobook. It was 40 hours. I said, okay, I'm not going to spend 40 hours, uh, but I'm going to listen to a little bit because I just want to get the idea of this. Of course, I listened with rapt attention to 40 hours of what is one of the most scintillating studies I have ever come across in my life. Mm -hmm. Now, the point of all of it is I knew so little about the history of Reconstruction, the history of the Civil War, the history of the destruction of Reconstruction and how Jim Crow was introduced. I just didn't know these things, even though I'm aware, I care about these issues. But there's a lot to know, and the main thing is there's so much we are not told. Mm -hmm. And what is incredible about Du Bois for me, of course, he wrote that book in 1935. Mm -hmm. What an unbelievably 
brave man as well as a brilliant man because at that time he was one voice against a complete united academia led by a racist at Columbia University, Dunning, the so-called Dunning School of Reconstruction. And here was this one brilliant genius saying, you're all wrong, all of you. <laughs> you are telling lies. Now, you know, this is why it's hard to understand the truth, frankly, because, uh, because we tell a lot of lies. We tell a lot of fibs. Uh, we hide stories. When the, the new uh, current debates on 1619 and, and uh, teaching American history properly come in, you get racists like I think McConnell is, uh, Mitch McConnell. Okay, oh, oh, but I believe when he says we shouldn't hear those things, mm -hmm. that's a racism. Uh, because, you know, he actually, our minority leader of the U.S. Senate wrote to uh, the uh, uh, Secretary of Education, it's divisive to teach this history to children. It takes away their pride. What it means is we're hearing history told by new voices right now. And we right. need those voices. We need precisely this generation of historians, African-American historians, Native American historians, people telling the history first like it, like it really was, and second, from a different perspective. But my point is just to uh, go back and uh, not ramble. It takes a lot of effort, a long time, a lot of patience, and uh, really determination to keep unpeeling the onion to try to figure out mm -hmm. what's going on. So all of this is to say in international development, I started my practical work in international development five years into my uh, faculty career. So I was appointed as faculty member. I wrote a lot of journal articles. I got tenure early, uh, all very nice. Uh, and then I started working on a practical problem, which was in Bolivia in 1985, when that country was in a hyperinflation. And when I landed at the airport, I can remember to this moment, walking out and my jaw dropped because, oh my God, this is really a different place. Where am I? Uh, the air was a little thin because it's at 12,000 feet above sea level. But more than that, new, different culture, different physical environment, different history. I knew nothing about it. Uh, and of course, I knew a little bit of monetary economics, but all of that context, and it is the most joyous thing to delve in and under, do one's best to learn and learn and learn. But what mm -hmm. I can tell you is uh, basically that's 36 years ago, 36 years into it, every day I'm learning or reading something that's a oh my God, how did I not know that? Uh, and that is, I think, what is fun and good about international economics and international development. Mm -hmm. Wow, well, thank you for that. And thank you for taking us through that. You mentioned one of my favorite texts and even authors. And, um, you know, I have a question about it because you've been so engaged in sustainable development. I wonder, like, you know how in the book, uh, thing one of the things that Boris does is he talks about two labor movements, the abolition of slavery and one like improving conditions for white workers. But as a person like me who was born in 1978, the year that you mentioned, and then I learned over time, at first it was like, oh, everyone has the same, you know, access. Then I read the Boris book and I'm like, wait a minute, that's not the case. Hold on. So, so for me, information has changed. The question I have 
for you, Professor Sachs, is how has that discussion changed around sustainable, international, excuse me, sustainable development over time, in particular, as it relates to, like, say, climate change, you know, or, or has it changed? Maybe I shouldn't make the assumption. Or has it changed? You know, in, in all of our politics and discourse and analytics, there is a, an accepted logic and a dominant rhetoric. It's often got some brilliance and merit to it, but it's generally a narrative of power. Uh, it's generally put forward by the leading powers of the day, and it generally neglects a lot of hard truths and uh, tries to uh, cover up a lot of suffering. And so this is what I've learned and discovered and confronted and tried to understand and tried to deal with for a long time. There is a dominant uh, view of development where rich countries say to poor countries, why don't you get your act together? You know, be like us. We're successful. We're rich. Why are you so damn corrupt? Why don't you, you know, pull yourself together? That's a dominant rhetoric. Uh, of course, uh, what, is, what is left out is uh, about a million things. Uh, first, the whole colonial era is left out. Uh, what's left out is the continuing exploitation of these countries by stealing natural resources, not paying taxes, overthrowing governments. That isn't just history books. That is to our current day. What is left out is uh, all of the suffering that's caused because being rich and powerful means, ne you know, like the old story of love story, it means never having to say you're sorry, uh, which mm -hmm. was, uh, you know, the definition of love. But I would say it's the definition of power, uh, which is uh, that the United States never takes historical responsibility for anything. Uh, this is part, wow. of, uh, part of the U.S. power system which is, no, we're not going to look back at, at our own uh, history, at our own racism. We're not going to look at the historical emissions of greenhouse gases. So we're going to look forward. Uh, we're not going to look forward at, uh, oh, we happened to overthrow that government and imposed a, uh, a uh, dictatorship uh, afterwards. By the way, that's a frequent story. That's not a, a one-time story. Uh, okay. that, that's a Iran in 1953 overthrowing uh, a prime minister because he had the temerity to believe that the oil under the ground in Iran might be uh, the Iranian oil, not uh, the British <laughs> uh, colonial oil. I recently read a wonderful book, again, an, another eye-opener for me, uh, okay. called White Malice, which is the history of the CIA meddling in the early post-colonial Africa. And uh, one of the horrible events uh, of uh, the uh, emergence of uh, independent Africa was how the CIA overthrew Patrice Lumumba in uh, the Congo and imposed a dictatorship, a bloody, merciless, greedy dictatorship for the next 30 years. And it's important to understand that story. And it's not told when you study international development economics. Uh, and these are things that we really need to understand if we're going to understand what are the actual 
problems. You know, I am very interested in the DRC because it's uh, one of the most abused places on the planet in modern history. Uh, the Congo River Basin was colonized first by a maniac, crazed, antisocial monarch of Belgium, King Leopold. Uh, it was run as a slave colony by uh, Belgium. Uh, and then when it gained independence uh, in 1960, 61, the CIA overthrew a brilliant, popular young leader, Lumumba, and put in Mobuto Sese Seko as dictator, uh, who plundered the country for the next decades. And then today, the DRC is the site of the predominant uh, production of a crucial mineral for the zero carbon economy, cobalt, uh, which is a crucial input for electric uh, batteries and for mm -hmm. other components of uh, low carb, our low carbon energy future. Well, in principle, wonderful. The DRC this time, unlike the ivory, unlike the rubber, unlike the uh, uranium, each time there was a resource boom the country was completely abused. Well, this time the minerals should go for the benefit of the people of that country. But the challenge remains till today. So much corruption by international companies, uh, by Glencore and others, uh, that are still in a business basically of not paying taxes uh, and uh, maximizing the incomes of very rich people internationally and not engaging in decency for local development of people that are in desperate need of development. So all of this is to say this is why history matters. This is why who controls the narrative matters. This is why we need to understand facts on the ground in order to make meaningful approaches to the challenges that we face. And it means that until this moment, we're battling power and abuse as a core part of the real struggle for sustainable development. Mr. Sachs, that was a class in itself. Uh, <laughs> well, these are amazing, these are amazing histories. Mm -hmm. And we and you know, when you when you think about them. Boy, they really call on us to make a, a, a different kind of world that really lives up to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, or the Sustainable Development Goals. And the history, which is hard to come by except from extremely dedicated scholars, is hard to come by because it's deliberately hidden. It's not just lost in the fog. It runs against power and therefore it is deliberately hidden. Everyone listening, you just got, you just received some edu education, you just received information, and you also, in my opinion, received a humble, humble opinion from economic leader and scholar, international. So Professor Sachs, with that, respecting your time, I know you have to run, so let's just close out, making sure that we have not left certain Stones unturned. Is there any last remarks, being that you understand diversity, equity, and inclusion? You understand these problems going on around the world, and you're still learning, as you told us, being a lifelong learner is important. You're continuing to learn. Are there any last things, maybe that I didn't ask you, or just something you'd like to leave us with 
which you've already left us with a wealth already. <laughs> well, let, let me say that uh, I, I really thank you for, for the podcast and the opportunity to speak with you, Thomas, about these issues, because the fact of the matter is we have a lot of work to do together, and we are obviously uh, at, a, at a moment of incredible instability, COVID, geopolitics, <laughs> war talk in Asia, in uh, Europe. It, it's crazy. And at the same time, we could be making such breakthroughs for human well-being, the likes of which we've never seen before, the progress we've never seen before, because the technology, the know-how, the ability to connect around the world in a meaningful way if we choose to do so, the ability to solve problems, the ability to get young people into this challenge is greater than ever. So I'm a huge fan of goals. I'm a huge fan of taking on some big ideas. I grew up uh, in the 1960s when President Kennedy said, uh, we'll go to the moon and back. Uh, and I, I, I love that as a national uh, objective. And I was uh, always uh, wrapped in rapt attention uh, on the radio or the television watching the whole, whole moon mission between 1961 and 1969. So I believe in big goals as inspirations for, for all of us. And we have some big goals. We have set the sustainable development goals, which call for ending poverty, ending hunger, ensuring every child is in school, ensuring everyone has access to healthcare, ensuring that there is gender equality, reducing inequalities. These are wonderful goals. They are time bound. They're actually practical, but we're not achieving them. So we set some good objectives and that's what I would like people to work on and to reflect on and especially young people. You have the energy, it's your world, go for it. Use all the digital tricks you guys know, <laughs> you know so uh, completely well. Connect with people around the world because this is group problem solving. Uh, this is uh, cooperation, this is partnerships and you'll have a lot of fun doing it. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm motivated just listening and talking to you. I appreciate your time again and I hope everyone feels the same, if not more. You know, uh, this this is a great planet. And as you, you said, uh, there, there's abundance. Okay, we change our philosophy, we operate a different way and also care about each other. So Professor Sachs, thank you. Uh, to Tebow and Nadine, my teammates, I always thank you for putting this together. And then I know to Savannah, who also helped to make this happen. Thank you. And everyone, this is Hartwood signing off until our next episode. You all take care and give it at the same time. Great. Thank you, everybody. Fantastic. Great, uh, great to be with all of you. Happy New Year. Thank you for tuning in. And I'm your host, Dr. Thomas Richard Easley. We never want to close out our episodes without thanking our sponsors, the Yale School of the Environment, and also Mind Heart for Diversity, LLC. Thank you again, everyone, for tuning in. <laughs>